Dennis Kinlaw was the president of Asbury College for 18 years, leading the school through the 1970 revival. In 1983, he founded the Francis Asbury Society to promote the message of scriptural holiness. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Here the word of God is found in the book of Psalms, reading a familiar psalm, Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly being. The original could be translated, you made him a little lower than God, and you crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I'd like to read a second psalm which is a very different one, in tenor and in message. So hear this, the 63rd Psalm. I would suspect that it will not be as familiar as the others. O God, you are my God, earnestly. It could be translated, many translations say, early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hand. My souls will be satisfied as with the richest of food. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. On my bed I remember you, I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Those who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth, they will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him, while the mouths of lies will be silent. Will you pray with me for now? Our Father, you have invited us to come to you. And so we have come to you today. And we have come because we need to hear you speak to us. The word which we need is not a human word, but the word which we need is the divine word, the creative word, the word that can make all things new. We would ask that you, in this hour, in your infinite love and in your tenderest mercy, that you would give a word, a redeeming, recreating word from you for each one of our hearts 
and lives. And we will give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. A new quarter and a new year represent new opportunities and represent new privileges. So it's appropriate that today we should begin by worshiping God, the one who has given those to us. Now, not everybody understands why we do this. You're aware that there are thousands of institutions, educational institutions in this country today, and multiplied hundreds of thousands of students in those universities where there is no opportunity for a chapel like this. I'm not sure where they think time comes from. It may be that they figured it's of their own making, or that somehow it's their due, or that it is simply the result of meaningless chance operative in our universe. But they certainly do not believe that it is a gift, a personal gift from a personal giver. But we believe that it is. In fact, we think we know that the time that is ours, the day that today is new, the quarter and the year that today are new for us, we believe that they are gifts from him. And so we stop today to thank him for giving these to us. There are some who would feel that it was quite inappropriate in an educational institution to introduce God and to introduce religion. We believe in our day, at least that's what we say, in a radical separation of school and God, of school and religion, of learning and of God. I think part of the problem is that we've forgotten whence we have come. Because what we need to remember is that even the most secular university in this country owes the very concept that gave it its existence to the church of Jesus Christ. Because the scripture, the Bible, and the Church of Christ are the womb from which the Western University came. All of our universities, whether they're secular or not, came from those cathedral and monastery schools of the Middle Ages, and that's reflected in the fact that all of the original colleges of the United States were committedly Christian. There are two major factors that led to the rise of the, what we speak of the, as the college or the university in Western culture. One of those factors is a concept, and it is an incredibly simple one. And if we think about it, it should be a very obvious one. That is that all of truth is one. It's whole cloth, if we could see it right. That there is a unity about knowledge, and it really doesn't matter which end of it you start at. If you ever see it all, you will know that it, it is all interrelated. It is all part of a single whole. Now we believe that because we believe in a common origin for all things. That what you study in biology here and the student who studies the biology, what you study in history and the student who studies history or the professor who teaches it, all of us, all things have their origin in the creator. The secular university may not teach the doctrine of the creation, but it exists because somebody once believed in the Creator, and somebody once believed the creation account that we find in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, the second factor that has contributed to the rise of the college and the university in our culture is uh, found in Genesis 1.28. It is a command. It is reflected in this psalm, and there are those who believe that the eighth psalm is a commentary 
incense or at least an expression of worship that arose out of the reading of the first chapter of the book of Genesis. That is, that man has been made a little lower than God himself, and when God made him, when God made you, and when God made me, he made us together to rule over the rest of the creation. So that when we shoot a space shot out into the, out into space, there is something about that that is in direct obedience to the command that is found in Genesis 1. Or when you go into a laboratory and begin an intricate experiment, that very act is an act of obedience to the command which is given in the book of Genesis. We are made to master and to rule, and the way that we come to do that is by knowing that world of which we are a part. So what we do here in knowledge is not secular. What we do here, whether it is in chapel or whether it is in class or whether it is on the, on the ball field, it does not matter. It is all in fulfillment of a divine command. Now I want you to notice a key word in that. And that key word that I want to use, you can find perhaps, maybe you can find a better synonym, but let me use the word which is used in the text that I have of Genesis 1.28, we are told to subdue and to master the creation. Now, God may be to many people in educational institutions an illegitimate subject, but as far as the scripture is concerned, he is the main player, and as far as the realities historically are concerned, he is the main player in it all. And so it's appropriate today that we should acknowledge him, that we should worship him. But you know, I'm convinced we need, and here above all places, to do more than acknowledge him. I'm convinced that we need to come to know him. Now there is an interesting problem when we talk about knowing God, because the context in which we are speaking now about knowing him is the context in which we speak of the purpose of a college or of a university. And that is, we are to know the creation so that we can master it and fulfill the purposes that God has for us. But there's every indication that he wants to make himself available to us personally so that we can know him individually as a friend, as a lover, and as the one in whom we find our greatest personal fulfillment. Now, what is the problem when we put these two ways of knowing in the same package? The problem is that knowing God is a very different kind of knowledge from the kind of knowledge that we find in the areas of our activities in an institution like this. It is so different that oftentimes the university or the college can be one of the easiest places in which we lose the knowledge of God or in which in our gaining of knowledge of everything else, we forget and do not know that we have not come to know the greatest thing of all or the greatest person of all, and that is God himself. That can happen even in evangelical colleges, because there are many students who have graduated from Asbury College without any personal knowledge of him. One of the finest scientists that I know in the United States today is a young man who several years out of his experience at Asbury College in a succession of events engineered by God himself came to know God and his total life was transformed. 
He was, I was interested in having him share with me something of the difference of his attitude toward this institution after that experience than the attitude which he had before. Very competent, incredibly well-trained, sophisticated scientist, but with all his knowledge of the creation, he had never really come to know the creator. Now, it can be true even of theological schools. Because, you see, when you study in theological schools, you're using basically the same pattern for knowledge and the same kind of approach to knowledge and to truth that is used in this institution as well. I found that there are many people who are graduates of theological institutions across the United States who have never come to know personally and intimately the God who is the God behind the studies of theology. Now, if that's strange to you, and if you have any doubt about that, I would like for somebody to explain the numbers of Christian clergymen who, after they entered the clergy, came to a personal knowledge, knowledge of Christ. John Wesley, a very good example, who, when he was 35 years of age, when he had finished Oxford in his theological training in his early 20s, he was 35 years of age before he came to a personal encounter with the living God in Jesus Christ. Now, I think the problem between the two kinds of knowledge can be expressed in, in two expressions and in two words. If uh, I do not say this as clearly as, uh, I, as you would like me to say it, it's because I probably haven't gotten my thinking clear as clear as it ought to be, but let me try. Let me point to the expression to know, and then let me use the expression to know about. And let me draw the difference in saying that a substantial chunk of what you will be doing in a liberal arts college is learning to know about, where there will be an area of knowledge that you want to master, you want to control, and so you will bring it under your scrutiny, and you will give your time, you will give your energy, you will give your discipline and your commitment so that you can master that particular area of knowledge. And before you finish the course, the professor will give you an examination, and the purpose of that examination is to see if you have come to a mastery of that material and if you are in control of that area of knowledge. Now let me uh, say that if I draw, if I center on these two expressions, to know and to know about, there are two words that I would like to link that are representative of the two. When it comes to the, to the business of knowing about, the word which I want to center on is the word control. You heard me use that a number of times just a few moments ago. And that is the purpose of every examination that you will have while you're in college. The purpose of this institution is to give you control over bodies of material, over basic skills. The purpose is to give you mastery in those areas. Now, uh, in that kind of search for knowledge, the emphasis is to a certain extent upon detachment. It is where the role that you play is primarily a role of an observer, where you step back and look at that body of knowledge or look at that bit of information or look at those skills and you try to find a way to bring yourself to where you control You find that the information with which you are dealing, the area with which you're dealing, is a subject to be known in which it is to be observed, 
It is to be controlled, and the purpose of the control is so that we can use that knowledge and we can use it in our position as masters of the creation. And as I said, that takes time, it takes energy, and it takes concentration. This is appropriate for a study of the knowledge of the creation which God has given to us and of the creatures that make it up. But now when you come to the matter of knowing him, we move into a totally different area and style and methodology. And if we take the method of knowing about into our knowing him, we will find that we have hit an impenetrable wall and there will be no result that will come to us from it because we have used the wrong procedure in the different areas of research and investigation. Because you see, if the word in the in knowing about and in the sciences and in the knowledge which we're concerned about here in our curriculum primarily, if the key word there is control, the key word when it comes to knowing God is exactly the reverse. The key word is either surrender or a word which is remarkably close to it. Because when we come to God, it is not our business to capture him and dissect him and find out how he ticks. It is not our business to capture him so that we can observe him and see how he performs and if he does it right. It is not our business to order him to appear on our demand so we can be prepared for whatever test is to come. If we are to know him, he's the one who will take the initiative. And if he doesn't take the initiative, you will never find him. Because it is in his power to know and to be known. And so, he is one who must give himself to us if we are to know him. And he is one who must make himself available to us if we would know him. What a radically different context for knowing than that which we find in the typical course that we have. We, uh, if we use the one method in the other area, we will preclude the very thing that we seek. Immediately after Thanksgiving, we had a renewal conference here on campus. About 110 people who came from across the country and across the world together just to pray together and to spend a few days, or two days it was, in seeking to know him. It was interesting, uh, the result of that. One of the persons that I met was a young man who had just completed his doctoral training in a theological seminary. His life ambition was to be a missionary, and he had received an appointment to go to a mission school in a third world country. He sat through the renewal conference, very sharp, very intelligent young man, with a PhD in, in scripture and theology. At the end of the conference, he sat down with two of our groups. And he said, you know, I cannot express to you my appreciation for these two days. I don't have words adequate 
to express my gratitude. You see, these two days have given me back my Bible. Because graduate school took it away from me. I remember the graduate school he was in. It was in theology and scripture. The subject of theology is God. And the author and subject of scripture is God. But he said, you see, the methodology that was used and which, to which I subscribed and found myself unwittingly the victim. As he said, I felt that I must become the master of the scriptures. He said, in the last two days I found that I must let it become master of me. And he said, that's a different world. He said, you know, the loss of the scripture for me was unwitting. It happened before I knew it. But he said, the glorious thing is that in these two days it's been restored. And with that restoration, an access to the God who gave it to me. Now, if there is any word which I would like to give to you today, it is exactly at that point. What a tragedy that when we obey the command of God to know his creation, that we miss him. And what a tragedy that when we want to know him, we substitute knowing about him for the personal knowledge of him. You say, well, now, what are the marks of knowing him instead of knowing about him? That's the reason I wanted to use that second psalm that I, from which we read earlier. Could I read it to you again? Will you listen carefully? The amazing thing to me is that the fellow who said this had never read a single gospel that the fellow who wrote this did not own a New Testament, that the person who wrote this had never celebrated Christmas or Easter, that the person who wrote this did not even have the Old Testament. And yet I want you to notice the intimacy with which he speaks about his relationship to God. Do you hear the word? Oh God, you are my God. It's one question to argue whether he exists. And it's another thing to know him as your own. Oh God, you are my God. From the language in the original you could say, Oh God, you are my God from among all the gods. I have a personal knowledge of in relation to you. Early will I seek you, or earnestly will I seek you. The breaking of day will find me seeking you. A new day? What's my chief business? To know you. My soul thirsts for you. My body 
That's an astounding thing, isn't it? My flesh is what the Hebrew says. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. For I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Isn't it interesting when God is no longer an option in your life any more than bread and water? You know that eating and drinking for most people is not a decision. It's so much a part of our lives that we instinctively move. We don't need bells usually to tell us when we say, I have need. And we turn without a choice to seek the satisfaction of those needs. Now that's the language that the psalmist uses. He says, I have come to the place where God is not an option for me. He is as necessary for me to exist as food and drink. And it takes no more discipline for me to seek and find God than it does for me to seek and find the cafeteria. That's an interesting stage of life. Stage of life, isn't it? He says, because your love is better than life. Do you know anything the average person values more than life? you know how far we will go to save a life? Everything is put in second place to that. We even put the saving of another person's life as primary over every one of our personal needs when the occasion occurs. The psalmist says, you know, I have found that he is more valuable than life itself. Did you know that a person can get to the place where the presence of Christ, of God in his life, is more important to him than his own existence? That may have been written a thousand years before Jesus Christ was born. This man came to know God that intimately without knowing about Christ. How intimately ought I to know him? And if he could say the love of God is better than life with his little knowledge of the love of God, what kind of passion ought to move me who knows so much about the love of God which has been manifested to us? In Christ. Because of this, I will praise you as long as I live. While I live, I will bless you, is what the Hebrew says. And in your name, I will lift up my hand. It's interesting, there is no knowledge of God expressed like this in Scripture where sin has been cared for and the relationship is clean, but that is expressed in a context of joy and praise. If we ever come to know him, 
we will find our joy in him and we will find incredible gratitude and praise in us for knowing him. Now there's a certain joy and there's a certain pleasure in mastering a body of material. But there is an ecstasy in this that is not found in any other area of human knowledge. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness or with the richest of foods. While my mouth sings your praise, when I remember you on my bed and when I think of you through the watches of the night. You know, it's almost as if he wanted to wake up so he could think about it. He said, because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So the king will rejoice in God. The king is right here. So the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him, while the mouths of those who lie will be silent. You see, he is the God of truth. And when we come to know him, we know that that will ultimately stand. And what we're dealing with will outlast all else, because he is God. Now, uh, as I think about our new quarter, and as I think about a new year for you, and a new quarter and a new year for me, I hope when these next ten weeks are over, I'll know more than I know today about a lot of things. And I certainly pray that ten weeks from now, you will know a whale of a lot more about a lot of things than you know right now. But I hope that with all of our knowing, somehow we will get beyond simply knowing about God and get to the place where we know Him. You see, that's why we have chapels as well as classes. And that's why we have other religious activities here as well as other academic interests. Because you see, we believe it's not enough to know simply the creation. But the greatest of all knowledge is to know the creator. And that those two knowledges are not incompatible. But that the person who worships rightly in chapel will learn better in the next class. Bye.